Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes, who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I love that verse. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Good morning. Please open your scriptures to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. One particular verse in this psalm, probably the most well-known, is often used on flowery greeting cards or at church banquets because food is involved, and on social media scripture banners. Uh, verse 8 of Psalm 34, the most familiar of the entire psalm, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Almost everyone in here has heard that multiple times. But what about the Lord are we supposed to sense? Taste and sight are senses that lead to an experience. That's what taste and sight are. That's what all five of our God-given senses do. They lead to a well-rounded experience of life. That's what senses do. So what are we supposed to taste and experience and see about God particularly? And Dave is going to answer that question that God is what? Oh, taste and see that God is what? He's good. Is that sort of the lingering aftertaste of this past week for you? Is that sort of the, the dimming but present recent experience vision that you have of this past week? That God is good. See, Psalm 34, most of you, if you have your scriptures open, there's an inscription above this psalm that's not part of the original text. These inscriptions are not God-breathed, if you would, just like Scripture is, but they are put there to help us sort of tether it to a historical context. If, if you don't have it, I'll read what is found in many copies of the Scripture above Psalm 34. It says this, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, okay, King Achish drove David out, and he went away. 
And from that you get this psalm that is a beloved psalm by many of God's people. What the inscription does is it reminds us of a time in David's life when he was facing a series of difficult situations without, and I want want you to hear this, he had a lot of choices, but none was easy and none was safe. You ever been presented? Has life ever presented that to you? You might have seven choices and neither or none is safe or easy. David had been selected by Samuel among all of Jesse's sons to be anointed as Israel's second king. He was almost overlooked, if you remember the narrative. He was almost overlooked, even by godly Samuel, but he was not overlooked by God, and he was selected to be the second king following Saul. So by divine appointment, he is sent to the kingdom as a young man. He was taken into this kingdom by God's design to serve under Israel's first king. What is his name? Remember, tall, strapping, of course he's going to be a good leader, Saul. This would prove for David to be a toxic internship as he served under King Saul. Scripture records in 1 Samuel 19, 9-10. Now, these are, these are the acts preceding. This is the history preceding the inscription that we have under Psalm 34. It says this in 1 Samuel 19, verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Just picture this dark, gloomy, unsavory character sitting there with unlimited power in Israel with a spear in his hand and a dark spirit comes upon him. And David, he's already there, was playing the lyre, which is a U-shaped stringed instrument. Verse 10, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So when we talk about a toxic internship under Israel's first king, a spear-throwing, insecure, angry man, this is what David is facing. Saul is consumed with jealousy and ready to kill on sight. As a matter of fact, he tried to kill his own son because Jonathan stood up for David. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 33, it says this, But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. This is the kind of father that Saul is. Unlimited rage that he picks up his spear and he tries to pin his own son to the wall. Then it says, and God was even in that detail, and this is what I want you to see. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the midst of life's messes. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. It's interesting how good of a friend Jonathan is. He was, by the way, Jonathan left the banquet table, was angry himself at his father, but it seems that his primary concern is for who? For his friend David. Then he knew that Saul was going to kill David. David. David was faced with a difficult choice. Stay and fight or flee and be hunted. Those are the two choices. Stay and fight was not an attractive option to David, I think, because he had his own faithful band of warriors and many who loved him. He could have caused an insurrection within the kingdom. But and and if you read this in the narratives, especially of first Samuel and second Samuel, David had an acute sensitivity that Saul was God's anointed David could have killed Saul on several occasions and he chose not to because God had appointed Saul to be king. In addition to that, he would not only be attacking God's anointed, he would be attacking who? The Israelites, people whom he loved and people who he would one day, and he knew this, 
he would one day rule over and serve. So the only other option then, which was also difficult, was flee and be hunted, where the chance for survival seemed grim. It seems, and I want you to look at this, we're going to go all the way down to Psalm 34, look at verse 13. It seems that David, in writing this song, out of this historical context, seems to be guided by this. Psalm 34, verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You know what you never see in the account of David and the tension between him and Saul? You never see David speak evil of Saul. You never see David spreading vicious rumors to divide the kingdom and turn people against him from within. He chooses rather to flee and run and be a refugee and be hunted by a man who has almost unlimited resources and himself a skilled tactician. That's who you're going to be pursued by. So David flees Saul. Don't miss this often overlooked truth. Some of our sweetest expressions of praise, some of our best songs that come out of our heart are from our most difficult life experiences. Psalm 34 springs out of 1 Samuel 21, if that's the legitimate historical context. So let's look at the psalm. Look at Psalm 34, verse 1. Mike already read this for us, so we're just going to look at the words. We're not going to reread it. He starts by saying, I will bless, and the object of that blessing is what? Or who? Whom? The Lord. To bless means to reverently acknowledge or to honor or to speak well of. In that sense, we can bless one another by speaking well of each other. But when the object is the Lord, it takes on a a worship. We're ascribing worth to him by reverently acknowledging, honoring and speaking well of him. He uses another word in verse one. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The word praise means proclaiming the excellence of something. Or proclaiming the excellence of someone. Look at verse 2. He goes from bless to praise. Now he uses another word, boast. It's interesting. The word boast can be translated to shine or to make a show or to cheer. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let me ask you. Take an inventory of the last seven days. Take an inventory of your words and your affections. What did you cheer about this past week? What did you make shine on social media? What did you boast about or exalt or bless? You know, that's what we do when we truly value something. Matter of fact, it's impulsive. You know, some people try to feign it. They try to fake it. But you can detect that. But when somebody is truly blessing and lifting up and boasting something, it is natural. It's not forced. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. That's an invitation from David to all believers to do something with the Lord. And that is to magnify him. And that, that simply means to make big. And here's what you cannot do. You cannot make God bigger than he is, Right? So we're not talking about what a magnifying glass does. It takes something that is otherwise small and makes it appear bigger. What we're talking about is making the one who is the biggest of all creation, not even he's not created, but above creation and the biggest of all eternity. And we're restoring him to his rightful place. For instance, some people 
do this with their hobbies. They make it big, right? Or they do it with a political party. They make that big. Or they do it with a number of other materialistic or entertainment type things. And they put that actually as believers. We make that bigger than we make God. And what David is inviting us to do is to to restore God to his rightful place. So make him big with me. Magnify him. That's why when we sing, we sing about him and his son, Jesus Christ. We're not singing about you. We're not singing about your children. We're not singing about your great athletic feats. We're singing about God and his son. And then another word is used after magnify. Look at verse three. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt. That simply means to lift up. So here's the point. We do naturally, horizontally in this life, what Psalm 34 is inviting us to do vertically with God. Let me explain. When a sports fan's favorite team scores or makes an incredible defensive stop, how do they respond? I wouldn't even call myself a sports fan, but I can get into a game. But a real sports fan, when, when their team scores, what do they do? Woo! You know, like that, right? Well, it's, it's impulsive. And you ever watch sports with that person? And you're like, this is the last invite they will get to come to my house. I mean, it's, they'll spill their drink and, and they hoot and they holler. And they lift their hands. It's natural and spontaneous. That was and, and scary if you're not expecting it, right? Yeah, I mean, I've watched games with, with ladies who scared me at their responses, right? And it's just a... Woo! You know, we do it naturally, horizontally. What, the, what David invites us to do vertically. So we're like, woo, go Broncos! We lift our It's not the same level of excitement or value. We're not magnifying God the same way we typically magnify things horizontally. For example, screens after an incredible athletic play. Screens replay the play in slow motion. Probably by the end of Sunday, if you're watching the game and you're watching halftime and then you watch sort of these sports analysts, you will have seen a play, if it's a really good play, 35 to 40 times. And a really good play, you don't even get sick of it. Do we do that with God? Do we rehearse that my soul. And that's really what they're doing by replaying in slow motion. They're making it shine. They're boasting in a play. That's what verse 2 invites you to do. My soul makes its boast in who? In the Lord. Big head cardboard cutouts are waved to make players bigger. You know what they're doing? They're magnifying a player. They're exalting a player. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify who? The Lord with me. And let us exalt what? His name together. The analysts and fans break down all the plays and they bless them and they talk of their excellence. Look at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I mean, it's really silly and I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but we wear jerseys with numbers and other men's and women's names on them. We drink out of mugs with team logos on them. We put stickers on our cars and we allow, not we corporately, but some of you allow the end of the game to affect you emotionally almost all Monday. Right? And when somebody does this consistently, you know what we call that? 
When somebody praises something and blesses something and magnifies something and exalts something consistently, you know what, you know what the word is for that? Devotion. You know what God desires from His people? Devotion. And you know, we do this so well with shopping and pets and video games and our family and our investments and even the food we eat. I mean, really, isn't that what social media is, though most people will not admit this? It is a platform for praising and boasting and magnifying what is important to us. But verse 1 says more. I want you to look back at verse 1 because it says a little more. It says, and I want you to read it out loud with me when I stop. I want you to read the next phrase. I will bless the Lord at all times. Some of us have made COVID-19 bigger than God himself. Some of us have made those who aren't walking according to the, to the requirements we think they ought to be walking in bigger than God himself. Some of us have made the other people who are narrower bigger than God himself. This is an invitation to get back and magnify and praise and exalt the one who deserves exaltation. Keep reading. At all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And when that happens, when they do it at all times and continually, it is called an undivided heart. It is called, like I said, devotion. Now, in verse four, and this is where it gets interesting, and we're going to sink it back into the historical context. David moves to specific instances where this has affected his life. I want you to see the clear theme. The clear theme in this section is deliverance. Look at verse four. He delivered me from what? All my fears. Verse 6. God saved him out of what? All his trouble. Are you looking at the text? Look at God's word. The text is king. He saved him out of all his troubles. In verse 7, he delivers him. In this short section, you had delivered from all my fears, saved him out of all his troubles, delivers them. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord. Now, that term translated sought is never used of seeking something where you don't know where it is to be found. God exists and we know where he is to be found. Rather, it is a seeking for wisdom and guidance and direction. He sought him and look, look at verse four. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Do you know that people who trust God for deliverance show it in a tangible way? Their, their countenance there's, there's, a, there's a legitimate and genuine joy that betrays the fact that they're actually trusting God even amidst trouble. Look at verse 6. David is saying this of himself. This poor man cried. He was weak. He was helpless. He was in great need. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You know, in the context of 1 Samuel 20, there was no safe option for the young warrior David. Right? We talked about this. Remain or run. Fight or flee. Both were laced with life-threatening risks. Either be ambushed in the dark alleyways of the kingdom or be hunted down like an animal in the wilderness. Those are your choices. David chose to protect the people of Israel. He chose to flee, not lift his hand against God's anointed, and God delivered him and saved him even in that choice. Now, some of the commentators will say, that David was out of God's will at this point, and he was disobedient, and therefore God was chastening him. You know, there's nothing in the text of Scripture to substantiate that. David, I believe, in the will of God, flees. 
And God delivers him in a series of ways, in a series of episodes, which is the primary theme of this psalm, deliverance. First, God delivered him not only through his friendship with David, and I want our men to hear this, but through his wife's protection of him personally. First Samuel 19, 1-2, Jonathan, it says, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Do you know that sometimes God's deliverance comes through our friends, through godly counsel? In 1 Samuel 19.10, it says this, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. God delivered him. How in that situation? Probably by bad aim on Saul's part, or he was so outraged with anger that he had overthrown or misjudged. In 1 Samuel 19.11, it says this, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Can you imagine the emotional toil of being surveillanced by some of Saul's men? Why were they watching him? It says in the text that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, David, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. You know, you know what David didn't do? He did not protest his wife's counsel. He did not say, you know what, you're overreacting, you're just fearing, you've misinterpreted the events. Listen to what David did. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. This psalm is all about deliverance. And David was both trapped and cornered, feared, he feared, he's a great warrior, but he is fearing. And, but yet David now sees a series of of deliverances on his behalf. 1 Samuel 20:30 David tells Jonathan, I want you to I want you to see David's perspective as he's a fugitive. He says this, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Have you ever felt like that? That there's a single step between you and destruction. Well, then 1 Samuel records the plan that Jonathan was going to go into the kingdom. And on a certain day, David was supposed to hide behind the stone pile. And Jonathan would come out with his bow and he would launch some arrows. And as it was predetermined, he would say, David, if I tell the young boy to go get the arrows and I say they're to your side, then come, it's safe. But if I say to the young man, they're beyond you, that means to run. As a matter of fact, the urgency is even more when he finally goes out and he shoots those arrows beyond and he tells the young boy, make haste, run, do it quickly. David heard those words, so he sends the boy back into the, into the kingdom and he goes down and it says that these two men sat there. It's a very touching scene and they wept because of their friendship. They knew they would not see each other again. And there's this like little detail where it says, and David wept harder. But God delivered. So what does David do? He goes down, he stays with Samuel, the prophet who almost overlooked him. He ends up having to flee to Nob. While he goes to Nob, he meets the high priest Ahimelech. This is the great-grandson of Eli. David's appearance. Here you have a mighty captain in the army of Saul. He appears unarmed and alone. And the, and the scripture text says that Ahimelech started to tremble. He knew something was wrong. Everyone, by the way, in leadership around Saul knew that he was unstable and that every mood swing 
of this angry, insecure monarch meant danger, possibly death, for everyone within the reach of his spear. But not only was it Ahimelech in Nob, Ahimelech was a friend with David, but so was Doeg the Edomite. Doeg was Saul's chief herdsman. And as the story unfolds a little more, you'll find out that this man was unscrupulous and he had no morals. Doeg was lurking in the shadows of the tabernacle, watching. David appeared with other men, but with the wisdom of a warrior, he kept his men hidden. David approaches alone. David and his men were hungry. They've already been fleeing. They're living the life of a fugitive. And he asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread. And Ahimelech says, no other bread is available except what? Do you remember this? Because twice in Matthew, he records it. And Mark records it, that Jesus actually tells this story in detail to prove something. And Ahimelech says, the only bread I have here is the holy bread. That's 12 loaves brought out each morning, warm, replaces the other loaves that were sitting there. 12, two lines of six, one for each tribe of Israel. And without any matter of conscience, either David's or the priest's, he goes in and he gets that bread and he brings it out to David. Jesus drew attention to this to rebuke the Pharisees for keeping the Sabbath in such a way that was so religiously strict that it failed to care for human need. Not only was David delivered from hunger, but he was delivered from Doeg. Let me give you that sort of glimpse real quick. It was Doeg's knowledge of David in Nob. He saw David. He saw David talking to Ahimelech. Later on, Doeg would tell Saul that David had spoken with Ahimelech, to which the king summons him and all the priests of Nob. Ahimelech is accused of conspiracy against the king. Saul immediately orders his guards to strike all the priests down right down. Now, you remember, this is the king who, when Samuel from the Lord told him to go kill Amalek and the Amalekites and utterly destroy all that they have. These are non-Jews. Saul refused to do it. But now, guess what he doesn't refuse to do? He doesn't refuse to murder Ahimelech and all the priests minus one who escapes. That day, because the guards refused to lay their hands against the priests, Doeg takes it upon himself and slaughters 85 priests. Spills their blood right there. And then he moves to the town of Nob where he continues to kill women and infants and cattle, and only Abiathar would escape to tell David those horrific events. And from that, David will write Psalm 52. This is the historical... Con These psalms aren't just sort of detached from fear and trouble and death. They're sunk right into these experiences. The third deliverance is David asks for something. He asks for a spear or a sword. And interestingly... The only sword that is there is whose? Do you remember this? It's behind the, the ephod and it's wrapped in cloth and he pulls it out and it's whose sword? Goliath's. And David takes it because he says there is none like this one. What would that have done to David at that point? By the way, there's other applications. Trusting the Lord does not mean being unequipped or unarmed. David was trusting the Lord, but he was also very clever in how he got bread, and how he got a weapon. This would have reminded David of the incredible, here's the word again, deliverance, divine deliverance that God had granted David when he faced that giant. It served as a symbol of God's having delivered Israel 
and a very personal reminder of David's battle in the Valley of Elah against that man. Fourth, and now he goes from Nob and he leaves, he realized there's no safe haven with God's people. No safe haven with God's people. Have you ever talked to a believer who has found no safe haven in the church? David found no safe haven in Israel. He was hunted and people were turning on him. So he goes to the Philistines. I have talked with more people than I can count who have been hurt in the church or whose abuse has been covered. And you know what they do? They leave God's people and go to find more comfort in the world. David does the exact same thing. He leaves Israel and he goes to his former enemy. But we also need to remember this. Desperation creates illusions, doesn't it? In desperation, we can think something's going to happen. We can think Achish and the Philistines are going to forget about David killing Goliath. He can, he can hope that's the case. Well, let's see if it is. So with no refuge among God's people, he heads towards Gath where they had hoped for asylum. First Samuel 21.10, it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Do you remember who else was from Gath? Guess whose hometown that was? Let me read you 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. David killed their champion. He's running to them for refuge. And if David thought that, he, if David thought that the Philistines would forget his warrior champion-like exploits, he, he would soon find out that he was mistaken. Because it wasn't just Goliath either. Not long before him seeking refuge. Listen to 1 Samuel 19.8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Some of the very men that are standing on these walls and seeing David approach are the same people. David killed their friends. David killed their band of brothers. And he's going to them for refuge. So in 1 Samuel 21.11, now we're in the inscription above Psalm 34. Listen to what it says. And the servants of Achish said to the king, Is not this David the king of the land? Can you imagine how David heard that? Like immediate recognition. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Remember, David's a musician. There was probably a time, I would guess, that David loved that song. Right? David... Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. But now when your enemies are rehearsing that and part of those ten thousands are Philistines and it's being repeated by the Philistines, I'm sure David's probably saying, oh no, not that song. Not now. Right? This is a bad time for that song to be rehearsed. And by the way, guess whose sword he's probably carrying? Goliath of... Gath. Guess where he is. Guess where he's standing. I love what 1 Samuel 21 says because we have these sort of imagined pictures of David, right, as, as sort of a Thor-like Superman hero. It says, And David took these words when they were rehearsing who he was and that song. He took these words to heart and was much afraid. Have you ever been much afraid? The warrior king David was. He was much afraid of Achish, the king 
of Gath. And I think it's in this moment where Psalm 34.4 is happening. David says this in Psalm 34.4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He was greatly fearing. In that moment, does he cry out for wisdom? So I want, I want you to hear what happens next because it's not what you expect. 1 Samuel 21.13 So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane and made marks on doors and the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And sometimes we think these Philistines are just barbarians. But listen to the king's response. It's, kind of, it's humorous. So, so listen to this. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? But you know what God did by giving him the wisdom to act like a madman? He delivered him. The king of Gath was not the refuge David had hoped for. And I want, I want to encourage you, the world never is the refuge you had hoped for. But God would prove to be a safe and sure refuge. Look at Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Meaning, you will never be disappointed in what you hoped for. Looking to God will never disappoint. And do you know that when you experience, when the experience of divine deliverance is had, when it is gifted to you, you will then invite others to join you in it. Look at verse 8. Because now you have the admonitions to the godly. Here's the verse. After all that context and putting those specific statements in that Old Testament place, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I'm not sure what David is thinking of when he pens that. Is he thinking of how sweet the holy bread was when they ate it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good in deliverance from hunger. Was he talking about the deliverance before Achish when he could have easily been imprisoned and shamed and tortured? But God gives him wisdom to act that way and he's delivered. And by the way, where does he go from there? He's able to go down to the cave of Adullam. And from there, he finds safety in the stronghold of Judah. And his family even comes and joins him there. That's what deliverance for David looks like. Taste of his goodness. Taste and see that he is good. It's not an invitation to sample God and see if you like him. The idea is if you experience him, you will want all of him. You will want to exalt Him continually and praise His name. Because knowing God is not a theory. It's not just another religion. It is real and it's an, and it's an experience. Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. doesn't mean you don't get hungry. David got hungry. doesn't mean you're not in danger. David was in danger. But you have no lack. Look at verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Twice it says they will have no lack and they lack no good thing. And this is what David tasted and saw that God's goodness was seen in delivering and providing. It's interesting that he talks about young lions. You would think of all creatures, the lions could provide for themselves. But even young lions can fail to provide for themselves. In drought, when the watering holes are full of crocodiles or when the animals are sparse, King of beasts they may be, but even with all their ability and agility and strength, 
and stealth, they can still fail to find what they need and starve to death. And the point is, even us, you and me, with all our strengths and all our training and all our education and all our skill, will still face times by God's divine design where we need Him or there is no way out. And what David is going to remind you twice is if you seek Him, you will have no lack and you will lack no good thing. So look at verse 11. Now David is going to take the posture of a teacher and we're just going to move through this quickly. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And I believe David is the perfect teacher for us because he knows, yes, what he tasted and saw, but he also knew the fruit of obedience and what? (laughs) David knew what disobedience tasted like as well. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Right? Not simply a long life, but one lived in fullness. The joy of good things accompanied by those who fear the Lord. Look at verse 13. It's very simple. Do you desire a good life? A life filled with goodness? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And those principles, for the most part, govern David's choices, his reactions, his responses. And yet when he didn't abide by his own counsel, he knew the joy of obedience when he did abide and when he didn't, the pain of disobedience. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And here's the contrast. It's a parallelism. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Contrasting examples to encourage you to do right. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Okay, now this seems to be contradicting what he just said. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So in, in Old Testament poetry, these are not promises. They're, they're what we call truisms. But it's also a promise in the sense that not all present troubles will dissipate. Not all sickness will go away. Not all difficult people will disappear out of your life. But ultimately, the righteous, no matter what opposition or trouble they are in, will be delivered and David ends on this exact note in verse 22. He says this. I want you to see it. Psalm 34:22. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. I'm going to invite our music team forward. But I'm going to take two minutes while they're getting in place to turn you to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 7, because in Christ, ultimate deliverance is true. I want to read this to you. So the experience of the Apostle Paul. He says this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You know, David could have said that as well. David, even after he was called a man after God's own heart, could say what Paul says. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You can, and you can feel the tension. Paul says, 
wretched man that I am, who will, and he uses this term that so dominates Psalm 34, who will deliver me from this body of death? And David would say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Paul will say this in verse 25 of Romans 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Keep reading. There's no chapter break. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ultimate deliverance in Christ. Romans 11:26 says this, the deliverer will come out of Zion. The apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15:56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. And temporarily this is what it meant for David. 1 Samuel 22 verse 1. David departed. He departed Achish. He departed the Philistines. He left Gath from there and escaped God's deliverance to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Soon after, he would sit on Jerusalem's throne. I don't know what you need delivered from this morning. I don't know if it's deliverance from sin. But Jesus Christ is the deliverer rescuer. I don't know if it's deliverance from a trial or a trouble or an addiction I don't know if it's deliverance from despair and depression. But if you continually read these narrative sections, if you continually read Psalm 34, I will say this to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And that repeated theme throughout all of Psalm 34 and the life of Jesus Christ is God delivers. And God delivers ultimately in Christ. Let's pray.